of our message today for this new series, The Glory of the One and Only, is His Glory Revealed in the Beginning. I'm going to start with a personal story of this gospel. My experience of this gospel, John's gospel, goes all the way back to my teenage years. When I was a kid, um, so I got radically saved or rededicated, I don't know which one, when I was 14 years old. And so in my second ninth grade year, um, I... I started following Christ. Like, I came back to school. I decided I'm going to finish school, and I'm going to serve the Lord, and I did exactly that. So over the next four years, when I became a senior, I mean to tell you that I just became a voracious student of God's Word, and I didn't know much background on the Bible at all. In fact, hardly at all. But I just loved what was in the text. And whatever I was studying, no matter what it was, whether it was Romans or Matthew or Genesis or whatever it was, I always came back to John. I felt like in my teenage years, I knew John the best. Uh, I had a friend whose name was Chris. Chris was a Jehovah's Witness. And when we met uh, in our sort of sophomore year, he tore into me a couple of times over some doctrinal issues. And if you know anything about the Jehovah's Witness cult, it is a cult, uh, they completely diminish the deity of Jesus. Uh, So what they teach is that Jesus is a created being, a created person. They do not teach that he is God from eternity. So he tore into me a couple of times, and I thought we would never interact again. Well, in our senior year, we did. And Chris was actually a friend. And so we were sitting in the bleachers uh, on a Friday. It was a pep rally, and there was not much going on. Apparently, nobody had planned this rally. And people were just kind of randomly getting up and talking. And then it just sort of dispersed. It never really ended. So we had about 20 minutes there before the bell rang while we were just kind of sitting and talking. And he turned to me, I, I, he turned to me, he was right next to me on the, on the top of the bleachers, and he said, you really believe Jesus is God? And right then and there, the only way I can describe my experience of, of this conversation is that the spirit of the sovereign Lord anointed me. And everything, every scripture verse that I had hidden in my heart about the gospel of John just came pouring out of me. It was so fluid, and I knew it was the Lord who had given me a grace to share the good news and the truth of God's word with this young man. And after 20 minutes, I just barraged him with the truth, and he was, I could see there was a change going on in him. And at the end, he was looking down at the floor, and he looked back up at me, and he said, I'm going to have to think about what you, ta- what you said. And I said, don't worry about what I said. You go home. You get a copy of the Bible. I said, what, what kind of Bible do you have? And he told me the New World Translation. I said, dude, that's a false Bible. And I pulled out of my, my back pocket my little NIV New Testament. And I said, you take this home and you hide it from your mom and dad. And you read it. You read the Gospel of John for yourself. And you read it with an open mind and open heart. And I thought he wouldn't. And I thought we'd never have another conversation Monday morning comes around and I'm sitting in homeroom. And I'm sitting there in homeroom and as students are beginning to file in, we have about 10 minutes before the bell rings, Chris comes in the door. He makes a beeline for me. Now Chris looks like he hasn't slept for days. 
his hair's like just all matted and kind of pushed to the side. I'm sure, I, I am sure that he had the same clothes on that he left with on Friday. And he came up to me and he walked up to me and he said, Jeff, I need to talk to you. And he had like these little eye boogers like in the, stuck in, a, in the corner of his eyes. I said, I got up. I thought his parents, I thought he was in trouble. And so I got up and I said, man, what, what's going on? And he said, I'm so, I'm just so confused. Like I read John's gospel backwards and forwards all week long. He'd spent the whole weekend reading John's gospel up one side and down the other. And he said, I'm just, I'm so confused. I haven't slept. I haven't eaten. And I don't know what to make of it. It seems like this is a different Jesus. I said, it's the real Jesus. I said, man, are you prepared to make a commitment to Jesus, the real Jesus, and to leave behind and renounce this false cult that you're in right now? He goes, yes, I am. And right there in the middle of homeroom, kids are filing in and putting their book bags down at their desks. And I go, give me your hands. And he put his hands in mine, and I led him in a prayer. It's called the sinner's prayer. Don't ever tell me that the sinner's prayer doesn't work. I led him in a prayer that conf of confession of his sins before God as a sinner who, who deserves judgment. And I led him in a confession of the one God in eternity, the one in three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I led him right there to a confession that Jesus' cross, his death on a cross, and his resurrection is sufficient for his salvation. And when he said amen, he opened his eyes and went, I feel better. I said, great. He was so hungry for God's word, he wanted to come home with me that day. He drove his car to my house, and we spent the rest of the evening studying John's gospel, and then he just looked like a man who the weight of the world had lifted off of him. And he went home, and he attended church with me every time the doors were open for the rest of that senior year until his parents found out <laughs> that he was a Christian. And then he met with me and told me, essentially, that he was not to have any more contact with me. His parents forbade it. His church elders forbade it. And then he told me the story of what they did to him. They got him in the living room and put him in the middle of the living room. And all the elders from the church came over. And they just harassed this kid. They tried their best to talk him out of his faith. And he said, this is my last day here because they're making me switch schools because you're attending here. And they don't want me to be friends with you. And he left. And despite my best efforts, I never found out what happened to Chris. And I pray to this day that he's still walking with the Lord. And that conversion that he had was genuine and true. And that he's still a student of the gospel of John and the rest of them too. Why would I tell you that? Here's why. Because this gospel, this gospel will change your life. This gospel can change, first of all, the most important thing, which is your eternity. It will change your eternal status, but it will also change your marriage and change your outlook on life. This gospel has that power. If we will, take it deeply into the recesses of our mind and our heart. If we will wrestle with its truths, if we will be confronted with what this gospel is telling us it can change us. And it can also give us a hunger, a voracious hunger for more gospel because it's not all in John. There's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it can give us a hunger for those gospels too. Why do we have four? I get this question a lot. Why do we have four gospels? I want to tell you why. First of all, I want to tell you that there is only one gospel. There's only one gospel message, and there's only one gospel story. What we have is we have four stories in stereo. 
that are giving us four different perspectives, but they're not giving us different perspectives just because the authors themselves want to tell us some different things about Jesus that are not in the other Gospels. That's part of it. They're giving us a different perspective because the Gospels, all four of them, are four different subgenres of literature. They're written in different kinds of literature. Now, all of them belong under the heading of historical narrative, historical narrative or historical biography, but they're different. Mark's gospel, for example, if you care to know, is a hero narrative. What is a hero narrative? In the ancient world, in the Roman world, they had what's called the short, pithy hero narratives. And a hero narrative was about an adult person, so it didn't trace his birth, It was about an adult who was already recognized to be a person of significance. And that person of significance decided to put their life on the line for king and country. And in that hero narrative, this person like Brutus or Cassius or Sulla, these ancient Roman warriors, these heroes of old, what they would do is go out and fight for the glory of Rome. And what they would end up doing by the end of the the story is putting life and limb at risk, risking life and limb for king and country, but they would end up being celebrated for oppressing people just like Jesus from Palestine, putting guys like him on the cross. Now look at Mark's anti-hero narrative. This is what we call the action gospel because Mark doesn't have as much teaching as Matthew, Luke, or John. Mark goes straight for Jesus as an adult, and the story opens up with Jesus as an adult, already in ministry. Jesus goes into ministry, and he begins to do exactly what you find in ancient hero narratives. He begins to, he begins to do mighty exploits, and it reveals his character. And the character that's revealed in Mark is that he is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He is the suffering servant for his people on behalf of his people in Isaiah 53. And that's what we learn. He's the son of God who suffers. He's the son of God who suffers for his people and who drinks deep to the dregs, the wrath of the nations and is victorious over them. What about Matthew? Matthew is a proper historical biography. Uh, The historical biography was noted for a couple of things. One is you want to tell the person's life from birth to the end. So that's exactly what you find in Matthew. You don't find a birth story in Mark, but this is a historical biography. And so Matthew wants to go back to the beginning and say, this is how this great king came into the world. And then by the time you get to the end of his life, so Matthew is bookended by two very important scriptures. The first one is in Matthew 2. And in Matthew 2... It specifically says, prophesies over Jesus, that he will be the ruler who will shepherd my people. So that's the one bookend, the ruler who will shepherd my people. The other bookend at the end is Matthew 28. Jesus has risen from the dead. And he says to his followers, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. So Matthew is teaching that Jesus is the son of God, but he is the supreme, supreme authority in the universe. Now, why is that important? Because historical biographies were like this. They would take a person like Plutarch's uh, lives, the lives of Plutarch or Livy, and they would tell the story of a Roman emperor and try to set that person in the context of his universal significance. His universal significance. And this is what Matthew does. He wants to tell you, this is the son of God, but this son of God, all authority. And the entire heavens and earth, universal authority has been transferred to him. 
Now go make disciples on his authority. What about Luke? Luke is what we call a historical monograph. Historical, isn't this fun? This is, this is so fun. Luke is a historical monograph. What do you know about ancient monographs? Well, ancient Roman monographs had two features. The first one was they tended to be an orderly account. In other words, they tended to be written in such a way that they had a very meticulous order and sequence of events. In addition to that, they were not written about a person. They were written about the events surrounding the person, the historical events, right? So it's a history proper. And what does Luke say in Luke 1 through 3? He says, Theophilus, that's his patron. He says, I endeavored to write an orderly account, one that was sequential and chronological about the events surrounding the life of Jesus. That's a monograph. It's historical. What about John? John's gospel is different from the rest of them in that it is a memoir. More specifically, it is a theological memoir. What is a memoir? Well, if uh, there are examples of these in the ancient world, one would be Caesar's Gallic Wars. You can write that down. Caesar's Gallic Wars. You can look up Caesar's Gallic Wars, and what is that? That is the personal reminiscence. Those are the personal memories of Caesar, Julius Caesar, when he attacked the Gauls. And so he writes about 58 BC, and then the next year he writes about 57 BC and his attack of the Gauls, and they're just memoirs. They're just a personal, they're not necessarily in chronological order. They don't have to be. Chronology and sequence is not nearly as important for a memoir as it is for a monograph. And this is why you see things in the Gospel of John that are kind of shifted, like when did Jesus cleanse the temple? Well, all the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, say he did it at the end of his life. John puts that story at the beginning of the gospel. He's not so interested in the chronology. He's interested in the historical account that is surrounding his theme. Built around his theme. What's his theme? Well, it's right here in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. He says, therefore, this is the end of the book. This is his summary, conclusion. He says, therefore, many other signs. That when you see the word signs, that is a placeholder. It's what's called metonymy or a metonym for a larger concept, right? You've heard of synonyms and antonyms. This is a metonym. And a metonym is a placeholder word which, which holds a place for a larger idea. And that includes three things in the Gospel of John, the signs, the sayings, and the symbols. So in the Gospel of John, throughout the Gospel of John, what you're going to find is these miraculous signs. These are signs proper. This is what we think about when we talk about signs, like Jesus just turning water into wine. Wow. Right? Changing the molecular structure of water to make it old wine. How does he do that? Right? So that's a miraculous sign. But then you also have the sayings. The sayings are very important because every time Jesus teaches, it ends up in him having seven I am statements. He says, I am, which is God's name from the Old Testament, Exodus 20 or Exodus 12. And then you have the symbols. Jesus stands in the temple complex and he says, I am the light of the world. That's a symbol in their worship. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild this temple again in three days. He is the living tabernacle of God. He's the person who embodies God's presence. So you have the signs, the sayings, and the symbols. And he says, therefore, many other signs. 
sayings and symbols Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, but, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What's his purpose? His purpose is very simple. Here's what John wants you to do. John wants you to observe and witness with him the signs. All that Jesus said, all that Jesus did, his works, his mission, his teaching, all of it. He wants you to bear witness to it with him. And when you do, he says, then you can believe that he is Messiah, Christ, God's king, God's anointed king, and the unique son of God from eternity. When he uses the phrase son of God, he means God the son. That's what he means in this book. So he says, I want you to see that Jesus is the true king of Israel and the world's rightful Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, the savior of the world. And I want you to see through these signs that he is God the son. He is the son of God from eternity, God's unique son. But what's the key? The key to seeing that is John chapter two, verse two. Most people miss this and I'm glad we're not. Here's what it says. First miracle. This is what, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. When did they believe in him? What predicated their belief in him? They saw his glory through what? The signs. You see, when you witness the signs, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see a man who can't just be a prophet who can't just be a miracle worker or some Jewish magician. You're going to see a man when he speaks, when he acts, when he does, who is revealing in his embodied life the glory of the one and only God. And the glory of the one and only God revealed in his embodied life reveals him as the one and only son. Look at John 1.14, a critical passage. The word. This son from eternity became flesh and made his dwelling. He tabernacled like the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. He tabernacled dwelling among us. We have seen what? His doxa. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. He says in this embodied life, here's what we saw. We saw the revelation of God's majesty, the revelation of God's truth, the revelation of God's glorious light. We saw it embodied in this human life. And when you see the glory in the signs, you're apt to believe. And if you believe this message that he is Messiah and the unique son from eternity, he says you have life. You have life in his name. And here's the catch. You can't have life in any other name. You can't have life in any other Jesus. There is no other Jesus. There is no other version of Jesus other than this one that you can have life in. Because there's only life in the Son of God from eternity. And so here's what he wants to do. He wants to take you through a tour of these seven signs and seven sayings and these symbols of Christ fulfilling Israel's infrastructure. And here's what he wants to do. He wants to put us right there at the table at the wedding reception of this raucous Jewish wedding. So raucous that they ran out of wine. Their cups are empty and they are asking the host for more wine. And Jesus turns water into choice wine. Wow. 
And what he wants to do is he wants to put you on the dock. He wants to put you on the beach so that you can hear Jesus' teachings, right? Hear what Jesus has to say about himself, his voice reverberating off the lake, up the hillside to hungry bellies wanting bread and fish. He wants to give you a front row seat to that. He wants to give you a ringside seat to Lazarus' raising from that dark, empty stench of a tomb. He wants to put you right there. So that's what we have to understand about him. You see, the thing about this gospel is this, is that it's very intimate. You'll notice that the way Jesus talks in this gospel is a little different than his public discourses in Matthew. His public discourses are lots of parables. There are no parables in this gospel. Lots of uh, public preaching. There's really not a lot of public preaching in this gospel, but there's a lot of closed door talk. And that reveals an intimate relationship between this man and Jesus as this, man's, uh, this man is Jesus' disciple. Now, John refers to himself not as John. He refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Now, Jesus was fond of giving people different names. Names that sort of match their character. So what did he call Simon? Petras or Kepha. You're the rock. And Peter's like, yeah, I'm the rock. <laughs> right? And then, like, there's some other guys. He's like, you're the sons of getting stuff done. You know, I don't know. Like, he was giving everybody nicknames. And then he looked at John and said, John, you used to be the son of thunder, the thunderous one. He goes, but John, from now on, you're the one that I love. You're my best friend. You're my closest companion. And I don't know about you, but if, if I was in that circle and Jesus said to me, Jeff, you're the one that, I, I mean, I, I love the whole world. I love everyone. I die, I'm dying for everyone, but you're the one I really love. I'm pretty sure I would just drop the Jeff. I mean, like, I would be in public and people would say, excuse me, sir, what's your name? I'd be like, uh, I'm the one that Jesus loves. <laughs> so John doesn't call himself by his name, Ioane, nor John. He calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. That's who I am. That's become the defining orientation of my life. And in the church historians, the next generation of church historians called him the apostle of love. The apostle of Jesus' love. So let's read together out loud, John 1, 1 through 5. Will you read it with me? Don't mumble it. Read it from the bottom of your diaphragm here, okay? John 1, verse 1, here we go. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, this, these verses are critical. We're going to deal with the first two today. Because this is the bedrock of the Christian faith. This is the bedrock of Christian theology. If we don't get the first two verses, we will not understand what Jesus was about, and we cannot receive life in his name. Not possible. So the very first thing that the passage wants to tell us, John wants to tell us is this. Number one, the universe had an absolute beginning. The universe is not eternal. It had an absolute beginning. John 1, 1a, in the beginning. Now this phrase is in arche. The Greek word is arche. That is where we get the word archaeology or arcane so we get some English words from that term. This entire family of words, this entire family of Greek words means the absolute start or commencement of something, of an activity or creative endeavor. 
So Greek philosophers, what you need to know is that the Greek philosophers taught, or they denied the creation uh, had a definite beginning. Those philosophers taught that the universe emanates eternally and springs forth eternally from God's being, whatever they considered to be God. And when they said God, they just meant that impersonal force out there. And on this view, the natural universe is a kind of eternal emanation from the invisible. But the Judeo-Christian faith, get this, the Judeo-Christian faith has historically refuted this nonsense. Now, you have to understand that the, the cornerstone of our theology as Christians is this doctrine right here. It is a stone that if you remove it, the whole complex of theology just collapses in. Christian theology cannot exist apart from this teaching. This is the historic Judeo-Christian faith. And it's affirmed in the Old Testament, Genesis 1.1. The very first words of the Bible are this sacred phrase, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. There's that same phrase in RK. In the beginning, in the absolute beginning. So the very first assertion of our Bible is that there was a definite beginning. The prophets pick, up, pick this up and affirm it. Isaiah 45, 12 says, It is I, God says, who made the earth and created mankind on it. My, my own hand stretched it out, stretched out the heavens. I ordered their starry host. You see what God is claiming? God is claiming I am the creator. I made the earth. I created it in everything, everything comprehensively that is in it. And then we have Isaiah 66, 1 through 2. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, heaven is my throne and, and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I would Shabbat or rest with you? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being. They came into existence because of me, declares the Lord. That's what God says about himself. And then we have Job 38, 4. God says to Job, he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. The phrase laid the foundations is taken right out of a temple metaphor. In the ancient world, they would build their temples on a foundation. Genesis 1 through 3 is structured like a temple building project. There is a foundation to the world. And God says, I'm the one who laid the foundation. I built this place. The Old Testament affirms repeatedly that God is the creator of the universe. And it came into being in the finite past. What about the New Testament? Well, the New Testament disciples and authors and writers and teachers, they were Jewish. So they picked up on this. It's affirmed in the New Testament by Jesus. Mark 10, 6. It says, but at the beginning of the creation God made them male and female. So Jesus is settling a dispute here about divorce. And what Jesus is trying to say, the gold standard for human relationships is one man, one wife for life. And he says, at the beginning. So he affirms that there was a beginning. He affirms the Genesis story. What about Mark 13, 19? Jesus is talking about the tribulation in the last days. This is scary stuff. And he says, because those will be days of distress and tribulation unequaled from the beginning. What's he talking about? When God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. I think it's clear that Jesus thought that the world began just as Genesis taught. It began in the finite past. What about Paul? 
says this to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.9. He says, he has saved us, Jesus has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us when? It was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Notice that it was given to us in Christ Jesus. It's Christ's. It's in him before time began. This is what Paul thinks. Paul affirms Jewish theology. What about the early church? Hebrews 1.10. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. It says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. There it is again. The laying of the foundations means the creation of the world. The New Testament affirms beyond the peradventure of a doubt that the earliest, earliest believers thought that the universe came into being, the material space-time universe came into being in the finite past. But this is also affirmed by science and cosmology. The late Stephen Hawking said this, all the evidence seems to indicate that the universe has not existed forever, but that it had a beginning. Look at this. He says, this is probably the most remarkable discovery of modern cosmology, yet it is now taken for granted. Well, I want to say, uh, Stephen, Jews and Christians have been taking this for granted for thousands of years because this is the cornerstone of our theology, that God is not the world, and he created the world, and the world came into being in the finite past. Today, eminent cosmologists Alexander Vilenkin stated in no uncertain terms, he said this recently, with the proof now in place, rock solid, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. It's a problem for them. Folks, it's not a problem for us. Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the beginning... Was the word. So the issue of there being an absolute beginning for us has been a settled issue all along. And this is also affirmed by the philosophy of science. I will not take the time to get into it. Frankly, I don't understand it all, but here's what I do know that there is a logical impossibility in suggesting that there's an infinite regress of causes. Uh, that's logically impossible. So John affirms, the Old Testament affirms, the New Testament affirms, Jesus affirmed it. Science does. The philosophy of science does. The universe had a definite beginning, and John starts his gospel by saying, in the beginning. Number two, the word existed before the beginning began. The word, title, of Christ existed before the beginning began. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, do not skip over this important, critical word. It's the word was. Now, in Greek, it's the word ain. Ain. And it, and it is an imperfect verb of the verb me. The word me means I am. And here, it's an imperfect uh, tense verb of that. And the imperfect simply stresses the pre-existence of something. Grammatically, the imperfect tense stresses a stasis or an already existing state. In other words, in the beginning, when the beginning began, the word already was. Now, how could the beginning, how could in the beginning, the word, the logos, be there with God? How could he be there in the beginning when it came into being? Because he already was. He says he already was God. He was with God in the beginning because he was God. That's the clear 
claim of the text. This word word is the word halagos or lagos. You heard of this term? Jesus is referred to here as the word, the lagos. Now, it uses this Greek term lagos, and it had a very particular meaning for Greeks. The Greeks were wrong. They weren't wrong about it all, but they were wrong about enough that it required the Hebrews to correct them. The Greeks held that all matter sprang forth from the prime reality, which they called the lagos. So that invisible reality out there that is just creation forever, eternal creation, is called the lagos. It's impersonal. They thought of it as God, but not a personal God like you and I think of uh, the Hebrew God. And so it was this unseen invisible reality of which the physical universe is merely a copy, right? So they had that wrong. In Hebrew thought, they viewed the Lagos to be God's personified wisdom, his truth, and his Torah. So in the Old Testament, what they found is that the wisdom of God is often personified as a person. The truth of God is often personified as a person. And the Torah of God is even personified in their interpretive writings. And they held this view for good reason. Genesis 1, 3, 6, and 9. Right there at the beginning of creation, what is present? God and his decree. God and his word. Creation comes into being when God says, when he decrees. And that decree is the expression of his internal mind. And so right there, God said, let there be. And there was. Psalm 33, 6, it says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the word of Yahweh. By the word of God Almighty, the heavens were made. Proverbs 8 becomes very important to the Jew. Very important in their synthesis. Here's what it says. When he, that is God, when he, God, established the heavens, I was there. Who's I? The wisdom of God. God's embodied wisdom, the self-expression of his wisdom. He says, when he, God, established the heavens, I, wisdom, was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies and when he established the fountains of the deep and when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him, right there beside him, like a master workman. So here, John wants to affirm Psalm 119.89. Your word, O Lord, is eternal, and by it you have created all things. So right away in the Hebrew Bible, this idea of lagos, or this idea of word, was this self-expression of God's internal reasoning and mind. And what John wants to do is say to the Hebrews and say to the Greeks, I'm going to lead you to a truth that is going to shock you. That Jesus Christ was the living embodiment of the eternal word as God's eternal son. And it is shocking for them. And Jesus thought this too. Notice what he says in John 17, verses 4 and 5. He says, he's praying to the Father. It's toward the end of his life. This is called the farewell discourse, and for good reason. He says, I glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me at your side with the glory I had with you when? Before the world was created, before the foundations of the world. Jesus thought... Either he was crazy or he was true. Jesus thought that he existed before the creation of the world with the Father in eternity as God's eternal word. And Paul thinks this too. Colossians 1.17. It says, He is before all things, and, all him, and in him all things hold together. Now stop right there. Just think about how much truth is in that little sentence. He is before all things. John is going to tell us next week, 
John is going to tell us that this word is the creator of all things, and without him, nothing was created that has been created. And, and Paul says he's before all things. And not only that, but providentially, he holds every atomic particle together. He holds it all together, else I don't know what would happen to the universe. Maybe it would just collapse back in on itself into a quantum vacuum. I don't even know what I'm talking about right now. I'm just using words. It's just jargon. <laughs> but look, Paul thinks this too. John makes it possible in this passage to say two things unequivocally, two things clearly. One, the word can be with God as a fellow in the divine fellowship of the Godhead. So he can be with God in that divine fellowship. But two, as to his essential nature, everything that God was, the word is, or the word was. So when it comes to all of God's infinite attributes, give me some. What can you think of? Omnipotence, which means what? Yes, it means God can do everything that is logically possible, that is in keeping with his character and his will. So it's, it, we typically say God is all-powerful. Well, the word is all-powerful. What else? Omniscience, which means what? All-knowing. God holds only in all propositional truths, and he holds no false beliefs, and that was true about the word too. Give me another one omnipresent so there is nowhere where he is not anywhere in the created order god is present immediately immediately there everything is a present immediate veridical reality to him and that's true about the word too so on the one hand this grammar allows for us to say that the word was with god as an eternal fellow in this godhead but on the other hand it allows us to say that this fellow this person who was in this fellowship, this Godhead fellowship, everything about him, whatever God was as to his essential nature, the word was. And that's what John wants to tell us today. The same divinity that belongs to the Godhead belongs to the word. And this passage is the fountain out of which Trinitarian theology comes. The word was with God, God's eternal fellow. The word was God, God's very self. And thus it can be rendered what God was, the word was. So I want to issue a challenge today. I want to issue you a challenge in our time closing. I want you to read the Gospel of John this week. Yeah. Listen, my friend Chris, that experience of having this word turn you upside down, causing you to lose some sleep and maybe a few meal, miss a few meals too, just anguish in your heart and fire in your bones, that anxiety because it confronts us and gives us holy disruption, all that can be yours as well. <laughs> it can be yours too. If you will pick this book up and let its truths go deep into the recesses of your thoughts and your mind and your heart, you will see, you will begin to see the glory of the one and only. And when you do, you will be apt to believe. Will you believe? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glory that is revealed in the Son. God, we scratch the surface today, literally the surface of this text and the surface of this book. But Lord, we know that you are here by the Holy Spirit to warm us to it, to warm our hearts to belief. Would you help us to see the glory of the one and only Son in eternity with you? Would you help us to see his glory unfold as we read and study and immerse our minds and selves in this sacred word? Would you help us? And God, would you give us life? 
If you're sitting here this morning and you don't know that you have it for sure, would you just cry out to Jesus for life? Would you just ask him for the life that you can't get in anything else? You can't get it in your marriage. You can't get it in your job. You can't get it in leisure. You can get it in nothing else but the son of God from eternity past who was incarnate in a human man, Jesus of Nazareth. Will you receive his life today? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.